Programming Throwdown, episode 99. Squashing bugs using AI and machine learning with Boris Paskalov. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. This is a really, really fascinating topic. I think there's there's been a lot of interest around using AI to sort of help developers. Um, we've all had apps, even like super popular apps like the Uber and the Google app and, 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 and other apps where they they have bugs and they crash and things like that. So even the people who are the best at this have tons of issues. And so it's becoming a really interesting area. And we're so fortunate we have Boris Paskalov, the CEO and co-founder of DeepCode, to kind of sit down and roundtable, you know, how we can make software better. So Boris, why don't you kind of start off by telling us like a little bit about your background? Um, you know, what was the idea or the inception of DeepCode and and you know, kind of at a high level, what is doing right now. Sounds good. Uh, so, welcome everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, my name is Boris Pasklev. Uh, I was originally born uh, in Bulgaria, uh, and I did my bachelor's and master's in computer science in Boston, um, and then worked with a number of different companies as a developer. Later on in my life, I did an executive MBA, so I started moving into project management, program management, and many different things in that space. Um, and yeah, and I'm still working in technology, but I'm coding less and less, as you can imagine. Uh, mm -hmm. So about DeepCode, obviously, uh, the idea is that uh, yeah, it started in 2016, and it's a, it's a spin-off from ETH Zurich, which is uh, the number one tech university in Europe. Uh, I usually call it the MIT of Europe when I make fun with the guys. Um, <laughs> nice. Uh, and uh, But yeah, the idea is, is that uh, my other two co-founders, uh, Professor Dr. Martin Vechev and, uh, and Dr. Veselin Rajchev, so they spent about 20, 12 years together researching the topic of uh, learning from big code, so program analysis and how we can really apply powerful machine learning algorithms on top of code. And they've uh, published many, many papers, lots of awards in the space, and uh, after uh, our CTO, uh, uh, Veselin Reicher finished his uh, PhD. Pretty much uh, the idea was clear that we have to start that as a new platform that should uh, revolutionize how software development works over time. So that's really uh, the passion behind it. Cool. So so let's let's unpack a lot of that. So, um, so you were a software developer, and then at some point you you made the the you went to like a business school. What what sort of inspired that? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it's a consequence of many, many events. But uh, slowly, as, uh, as a software developer, I started kind of project managing the software I was uh, I was dealing with, kind of uh, delivering it to the uh, to the end users and kind of working on the end to end, trying to actually get specifications from them, understand how we test it. Obviously, making sure there's less and less bugs. Uh, making sure that we fulfill the right requirements and kind of in my head slowly I start building this uh, overall picture that it's not just the software but it's an end-to-end -end process. So I start project managing some of those then they start giving me larger projects with more people and then all of a sudden the project became hey build a software that actually runs this robotized production line and then that this is how I ventured out outside of the software for software space. And then eventually I just had projects like, can, can you open our development office in Switzerland? 
uh, and that's how I kind of moved into non uh, non software projects. And eventually, I said, well, then I really do do that successfully. I need to learn a bit more about that uh, that side of the world, and uh, hence I did an executive MBA. Cool, that makes sense. So you know, this is a something I've always wondered: is what do you think about the idea that that at, at what level do you not need to have a technical background? So, for example. Does a line manager need to be technical? A line, you know, engineering manager. Does the director need to be technical? And at what point do you say, okay, this this now has transitioned fully into project management, you know, from process management from like a business perspective? That is a very polarized topic. I mean, as a techie, I obviously believe that everybody should have technical understanding and background, just because this is where you learn basic logic. Let's put it that way. Start thinking more like a machine mm-hmm. than a person, uh, yeah. to put it that way. And I think everybody should have a little bit of that. I mean, clearly, when you go into the arts, etc., there is quite a big range that you might not need that. Uh, but for anything, when you're working in the business world, you need some kind of a technical background, being that pure math uh, that can actually lead to, into the same uh, way of thinking. Uh, but with that said, there's many exceptions. I had uh, many colleagues that uh, didn't actually have any technical background. Uh, one of my very first technical manager, brilliant developer, uh, he actually has a PhD in literature, right? So, yeah. Wow. So there's plenty of exceptions uh, in the rule. Yeah, totally. I and mean, we have a lot of folks listening who um, maybe they started listening when the show started, I don't know, Patrick, what, eight years ago or something. but. But um, and they have all sorts of different degrees um, and, and backgrounds. And, and one of the awesome things about this area is that is that so it's so easy to pick up. Um, you don't need to have a really long apprenticeship. Um, you know, actually, I was reading something that if you're a hand doctor, it's actually one of the hardest professions to pick up. Um, and and wow. so in software, you could do it in in, in you know. I mean, it's a craft, so you have to develop it like any craft, but you can at least get started quickly, regardless of your background. Yeah, I think we just actually hired a junior software developer that had zero background in software development. Like a couple of years ago, he said, hey, I just want to be a developer, and he started picking it, picking it up. And I think with modern languages and frameworks, it is getting easier and easier to get into it, which is great. And there's a lot of tools that can help you along the way. Cool. So let's go into 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 deep code. So... You're talking about um, this person, uh, these these two folks who um, were doing some academic research on code analysis, and and one of the things I think that's hard to to grasp for a lot of people is how do you do uh, analysis on on code, right? I mean, you can imagine, you I guess you have to get rid of all the white space, right? But it's 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 this sort of really complicated language. It doesn't have clear parts of speech. So, so a lot of NLP techniques, it's not obvious how they would work here. And so how does one even begin to sort of programmatically understand a C++ file? Like, how does that actually work? Uh, it is a very, uh, very good question. And the short answer is it, it is very hard. Um, <laughs> I bet. But you, you start with extremely good developers. That's the number one thing. I think uh, uh, both of our uh, other co-founders, they're really like, they're, they are language agnostic. They can literally do anything. They understand the languages inside out. Uh, because the, the, the majority of the problem is program analysis. I mean, it's a pretty old type of thing that it's not very 
uh, sought after today, but it's really it's kind of gives you the core of what it is. Um, so let me just walk you uh, high level through the process of what it is. So first you start with parsers. So for each language there is a parser. So you actually use uh, one of the standard parsers, maybe small changes here and there, but that's about it. Um, and then a lot of uh, a lot of tools pretty much end up here. They just minor adjustment because the parser gives you an abstract syntax tree or AST, uh, and then people work on it. Uh, but the ASTs don't have are not rich enough. They don't really represent everything that you need uh, in the program, as you said, very complex. So this is where kind of the magic starts. We actually use uh, proprietary solvers that actually extract every single semantic fact in the program, every single interaction, every single function, every single variable, every single object, and kind of, and we build the relationship um, between them in terms of who is calling who, how is it changing, are you casting something to something else, et cetera, et cetera. So this actually goes into a, a graph index that actually represents this whole interactions of, uh, uh, of the code. And this is kind of the key piece, right? And this graph index has to be pretty much in a machine learnable format. Right, so then you can apply machine learning on top of it. So that's kind of where most of the magic is, kind of to create a machine learning representation for code, which is pretty much does not exist today. Or if it exists, as you said, it's being it's treating the the code as string as text, which obviously drops down all the semantic facts that are interesting about coding, um, and. Uh, and after you have this machine learning representation, then it's all about speed, efficiency, to kind of learn from every single fix ever made, every single line of code that exists out there, uh, and, and then apply machine learning algorithms to extract specific facts, right? Uh, and this actually uh, brings you to have this knowledge base of everything that have happened, how people have fixed different things, are there consensus how to fix them, are there people fixing it in a totally different ways, and then you can actually assign probabilities of uh, what problem is likely to be fixed in a specific way uh, versus in another way. Got it. Okay, so let me let me see if I can unpack this. So, we, so, so similar to, to sort of the grammar parsers, if, if, if folks listening remember that from grade school, how you would have the sentence, uh, you know, the man went to the supermarket, and you'd have to diagram that sentence, and you would you'd separate out the subject and the verb and you'd, you'd draw this little graph to represent that sentence. You can do the same thing with, with code. Um, and, then, and, then, um, and then I guess, but that by itself. So can you explain a little bit why, what has to happen to turn that syntax tree into a machine learnable format? So in other words, why couldn't the machines just learn on the syntax tree? What's, what's missing there? Uh, so it's missing a lot of the interactions and the depth. For example, you cannot uh, track, for example, you have an object you put it into a, an array, right? And then you actually get this object out of the array. The abstract syntax tree will not be able to tell you if it's the same object, right? So the idea oh, is that, that you have to have a much, much, much larger depth and actually tracking every single thing that, that, that happens. Like you need inter-procedural analysis, points to analysis, type state analysis, uh, may versus must analysis. So there's like a very wide range of different things that the abstract, abstract syntax will not be able to give you. Uh, and that's why like the type of uh, issues or representation you actually make on them are much more simplistic. And then if you build rules on top of them, then the, your accuracy level of uh, uh, it's much lower. So you get lots of false positives. Got it. That makes sense. So similar to uh, you have talked in the past on type inference and how, um, well, probably started way before Haskell, but Haskell, I think, is where it started to become popular. And then, and then you saw Scala with it. And now you have almost every like, TypeScript has it. Python has it. Um, and so what they're doing is 
they're looking at the program flow and they're saying, um, you know, x equals 3, a equals x, and so therefore a is also an integer. And so they're kind of tracing through. And you're saying that, that you, you need to do that kind of as a pre-processing step to actually look at the runtime flow in addition to the syntax. And all of that goes into some, let's say, connectionist structure, some type of graph. That is correct. And the, the key uh, part here is that we're actually doing this statically, right? So we don't have to actually build the code. We don't have to actually, we don't even have to compile it, make sure that it runs. We can actually track this purely by actually understanding the structure. This is where the program analysis come in. Got it. Okay, cool. That makes sense. And then, um, and then it's, it's, it's at that point, it's just ingesting as much code as you can, looking at zillions of, of GitHub pull requests that say, you know, fix array out of bounds error. There's probably, you know, 800,000 of those in GitHub. And so you can kind of look at all of those and see what the common structures are. That is correct, because when you actually convert it to this uh, internal representation that we have, then that becomes purely language agnostic, right? That's kind of the best part. So the only thing that it's language specific is the parsing, and then the representation is language agnostic. So we don't care how the developer wrote it. Uh, we actually care what it does and how it actually does it. Got it. Do you look at the variable names, or, or is that just too much noise? So uh, we actually have metadata that we can actually track back to what it is because that's the idea that we when we understand the problem, we can actually point to you where it's coming from and what it does. Uh, but ultimately, we don't care what the variable name is, right? I mean, it could be anything. Yep, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can imagine just semantic errors. You know, you say miles equals feet times 10 and say, okay, that's an issue. But I feel like, as, as you said, there's, there's, there's just, it's just too hard. There's just too many different names for things. Yeah, so there, there is a different tool that uh, that we have released, and that was during the, the research years, that is the obfuscation that actually tries to predict very accurately what is the best name for each variable. Because, you know, oh, you obfuscate code, you can deobfuscate it, so you can actually make it human readable. Uh, so yeah, in, in that, yeah so, so in that state, we actually have pretty good uh, heuristics based on the pretty much machine learning, what, uh, based on in what, uh, how a, a specific variable it's used and what it does, and then understand how people name it, and then understand what the right name it should be. That, that, is, that uh, is super cool. Yeah. Yeah, is that something that people can just try out? Can they just upload a CPP file and, and see what the deobfuscator... Yeah. I think that was mainly for Java. It is, uh, it's a JS nice and nice to predict. Those are the two, uh, the oh, two okay. tools that actually do that. And they are free to use, so anybody can upload anything there and, uh, uh, and use it. Oh, very cool. You have to check that out. Uh, so it's, you said JS nice? JS nice, yes. JS nice. Cool. Yeah, we'll add it to the show notes. So, okay, let's let's spiral back a bit to the, the, the sort of product and market here. So, so how do folks, you know, in general, how do folks find bugs now? Especially, you know, I mean, we've all found bugs, uh, you know, in our in our school projects and things like that. But when you're in this these enormous software engineering teams, uh, so imagine you're building the Amazon app or something. How do developers go about finding bugs in these in these sort of monolithic uh, projects? Wow, it really depends. I mean, there's uh, ultimately two major ways. The human way, like when you're using humans to do it, and some kind of automated ways. Uh, human way is obviously a range, like uh, like while coding, like yourself, or when you're doing pair programming, you have uh, your counterpart actually say, hey, what the hell is that? 
So that's standard, <laughs> yeah. uh, right? The peer code reviews, I mean, code reviews are pretty common today. So that's one of the, I think, most common ways that people will actually identify issues. And then unit and functional testing that you've built or you're building as you're developing. Uh, the more, sometimes I call it old school, but it's really actually pretty, uh, pretty popular still today, uh, actual QA testing or QA processes. Right. There's many different ones. Lots of them are still uh, human-based. Uh, and then the very final one is you're actually customers or users testing it and saying, hey, this broke. What the hell? What should yeah. we do with it? Uh, so I think this is kind of the, the range of the human identification of bugs. Um, and there's obviously many automated ways that are actually coming this way, uh, that using like static analysis, the automatic test coverage or test generations. Then you have the wider range of formal verification or fuzzing. Then there is actually some compliance testing that, that could be happening. So you have some, for specific industry, there's a specific set of rules that you have to test for. Uh, then they can cover issues. Uh, obviously, there's dynamic analysis as well. That's pretty big those days. And there's many areas that uh, you can catch things by just simulating uh, uh, the, the runtime of the program or actually running it live while the users are uh, performing operations. Yeah, that makes sense. I think as you move along that continuum, you add sort of more and more, I guess, risk or, or more side effects, right? So if, if if a bug makes it all the way out to the end user, it could be totally catastrophic, like you break the login page for your app, uh, you might you might never recover from that. Actually, I know companies who, like small companies that broke the login page and literally never recovered. Um, um, and then you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum where there's a static analysis tool so that you know, before you've even hit save on the file, um, you know that there's there's an issue, and so that um, that's obviously anything you can catch there is 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 uh, adds huge value to your time and and to you know de-risking the project. Correct. Yeah. So ultimately, uh, the belief is yes. The earlier you catch it in the development cycle, it is much cheaper. I think there is an exponential growth. A couple of studies have shown. Uh, that yeah, if you're catching it after it goes to production, it costs you like thousands of times more than actually catching it during development time. So, uh, so ultimately, most tools are actually focusing to try to get it as early as possible. So the developers not only identify them as as they create the problem, but they actually can learn from the solution because it is fresh in your mind. You say, oh, there is a problem here. Oh, that actually makes sense. Or if you have a symbolic hair that even can help you with the explanation, then it's even easier for uh, 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 for the developer to figure out, oh, yeah, that is the problem, makes sense. I know how to fix it. And you're pretty much never going to make that mistake again, which is the beauty of it all. Yeah, that makes sense. That's so true. If you, if you have to fix something, especially if you're under the gun because it's affecting production and maybe it's two months after you wrote it, you're probably not going to retain anything meaningful and then you can just make the same mistake again later. Yeah, or it's so, very likely that somebody else had to fix it, not the original developer. That's oh, that's true thing. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what is the you know in, in your entire career of of being an engineer, um, leading teams, leading projects, um, you know, here and abroad, or you know, depending on who's where you're listening, abroad and then in Europe, um, where what's the like biggest like most intense horror story? What's the bug that really kind of kept everyone up at night? Um, something that that you know kind of terrified you. That's a fair question. I mean, uh, as a good example, actually, it literally kept us up at night. Uh, we had this is back in the early days of VistaPrint. Uh, it was the holiday season was like a, pretty much like ten times more volume than a standard day, right? 
mm-hmm. and we have to process millions of orders. So, like, production went down, like, literally, and that's very costly because a huge amount of orders that pretty much cannot go through. Uh, so we actually had the, the pages went up, like we had to wake up like three in the morning plus, and then we went to the office and I think we spent something like two to three days because what happened is, is that, uh, we actually overflooded one of our production facilities, so they cannot really take any more orders. So we really had to create the fake production facilities, uh, in a matter of like a day. Uh, and we didn't know exactly originally where the problem is. It took us some time to actually figure it out and then we said okay that's really serious problem and then we have to continue fixing it and the fix was pretty bad because we had to make a new production facility uh so we spent a couple of days in the office non-stop it was a quite interesting experience and uh we ate a lot of pizza (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure you built some camaraderie and i'm sure you uh, never want to do it again (laughs) that is for sure yes yes i mean there was a a lot of sql back then we had to write a lot of sql migration scripts to uh, to catch that and uh even today, that is uh, not uh, the most bulletproof uh, language to do things in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, so Patrick, it'd be cool to hear from you too, uh, but but uh, I, have a, I have a couple. One, um, we were working with this, this, this vendor who is providing um, basically an internal tool for us, um, but the internal tool, this is a terrible design decision, internal tool is using the same fleet of machines as our, as our production um site and um basically they they deployed the internal tool um and about a month later yeah the entire site went down and we were, we were trying to figure out what it was it was really hard to sort of find do some root cause analysis um and yeah what we ended up finding was this one file where um so folks out there might know when in c plus plus if you append to a string and you do this many, many times, it's actually not a big deal because C++ will just allocate a big chunk of memory and then start filling it up slowly. But in other languages, and I think this was in uh, Visual Basic, um, if every time you append to a string, it makes a copy of the string. I think Java does this too. It makes a copy of the string that's big enough for the two strings you're trying to stick together and then puts both of them there. And so... This entire file was just thousands and thousands of append string, append string, append string commands. And, um, you know, the logic was all fine. So, you know, logically it was doing the right thing. And if you, for a while it didn't matter, but then the, the memory fragmentation just eventually causes all the machines to start underperforming. And then they, it's one of these things where once something is, starts slowing down, more requests come in people just start hitting refresh, which then causes it to slow down and it blows up. And I just remember spending just so many hours, same thing, just eating pizza. I think we worked almost like 30 hours straight. We were sleeping in the office, and then finally we figured out it was this internal tool, and then we just deleted it and went home. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I have any like horror stories where I just stay up 30 hours. That, I guess that sounds pretentious, not trying to be. I mean, I have tons of bugs, like you mentioned. I, I mean, we have one where we were dereferencing a pointer that wasn't set correctly in C++. And of course, you get data. It was just sort of garbage data. But it you know mostly worked until it didn't. So it was mostly zeros. And then occasionally, it would not be zeros and would break stuff. And we it was very hard to debug because you know, 99% of the time it would work correctly because you would dereference an address that was just set to zeros. 
but then occasionally it would dereference an address that would have something else in it that would be some old, uh, not overwritten data, and then the program would crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember. This is a classic. <laughs> yeah, I remember similar things. Just like you know, after two hours of runtime, it would just randomly crash. And it's it always comes out something like that. I think the, the actually the hardest things for 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 me lately are um, just issues with the data, and these are. These are things where I think there's a lot of tooling that still needs to be built. So, I mean, one I'm thinking example I'm thinking of is someone made a bug in a system where um, they they did a they had a day and they needed to convert it to day of week, and somehow they messed that up. And so um, there was no Sunday. So basically, all the Sundays were set to Saturday, and so there was there was twice as many Saturdays as you'd expect. No Sundays. And um, that just caused total havoc in all of the downstream systems. But again, it's not uh, something you can find uh, pretty easily. Um, it's something kind of inherent in the data. Yeah, that's actually one of the most common errors that we reported in 2019. It's a uh, date-time formatting. Uh, just yep. there's like hundreds of different ways to actually uh, make a mistake in those, uh, and obviously hard to figure out. And uh, that's why we have a whole category of uh, issues that actually detects that, which is uh, pretty cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think uh, um, anytime you can stay to UTC time, it's probably <laughs> just stay in UTC. Just don't print the date unless at the, maybe at the very end. Um, the AM, PM is another big issue in that space. I think I've, uh, I've had myself a couple of issues like this. That you yep. say, okay, it's daytime, and you forget that you have to, uh, you're actually using the 12 hours only, and then you actually don't keep track of AM, PM at all. Yeah, yeah. We have an issue where um, I think um, there's something about there's an extra hour. I don't remember the details, but but they we have like an anomaly. Oh, that's like it. Yeah, that's right. It is. Yeah. yeah. So, so that we have an anomaly detection system, and to this day, every every twice a year, when there's a daylight saving shift, um, you know, there's more or less traffic than we expect that day, and and an alarm goes off. Cool. Ah, sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, hey, I was going to say, ahead. with daylight savings, we always had issues that uh, during that week, there was always you're going to show up to a meeting and half of the people will not be there just because yeah. they're in a different time zone that's in a different daylight savings. That's always, uh, always yeah. a funny one. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's... I, I, I'm waiting for the day where they get rid of that. I, I Personally, I like it to be later, uh, lighter, later. And so there was actually... They were going to... Um, over here in California, they were going to pass a bill to get rid of daylight savings time, but somehow I think it didn't make it to the legislation or something. EU made uh, made a vote and they agreed, yes, we should get rid of it. But then in typical politicians' way, they said, but each country decides how they want to implement it. So now each country decides if they want to use it or not. So it's uh, still going to have oh. some, some countries drag along. Oh, jeez. Hey guys, I'm going to jump in for a, a minute here with a word from this episode's sponsor. Uh, we're happy again to have Educative.io, uh, an online learning resource. And since the last time we came to you talking about them, uh, they've changed things up a little. They have a brand new option. Instead of uh, buying courses one by one uh, and selecting what you want, they now offer, they, they still offer that, but they also offer the ability to get a subscription 
where you can, for the length of your subscription, access any of the courses. So all the same courses we talked about before, uh, you can now access for sort of a flat monthly or you know per time period fee. Uh, and because of their sponsorship, they've agreed to give us at educative.io slash programming throwdown 10% off either a single month's purchase or the subscription. That's right. You get 10% off pr- pretty much anything in the store. So... So I was looking at the courses after we talked last time, and um, a couple things that I, I guess I missed, I, and which is one is they have a number of courses that are actually just completely free if you want to try them. So they have free previews, uh, you know, little parts of many of their courses, but they also have a number of languages from scratch. So C++ and uh, Python from scratch. And those courses are actually free. So not only are they a great way to learn or advance your knowledge in those languages, but it's a great way to actually check out the platform first because, you know, spending any money, I I mean, I I don't like spending money. So not spending money and still being able to check something out always alleviates a little bit of the, the sort of nervousness around doing it. And this is a great way to check out the platform, these from scratch courses uh, and there's also another course I found on here that's the uh, practicing for programming interviews. So, Jason, you do interviews at your company. Do you recommend people practice programming before they show up to your interview? Yeah, totally. The cool thing about this is, is you know, when you're kind of writing in this sort of environment, they kind of give you some, they kind of give you some setup, and then you write some code, and then you can even kind of, you know, validate that you've done the right thing, and that's that kind of loop of, you know, writing something, especially, you know, in this case, if, if you're, unless you're sort of using an editor and then coming back, but if you're, but if you're writing it in the editor, you know, you, you're kind of writing that as if you're writing it on a whiteboard and then you're getting this instant feedback, like, okay, you got it right. Uh, you need to try again. And that's really going to kind of give you that muscle memory that you need so that when you go to a whiteboard interview, you kind of are a little bit more prepared. I think that the from scratch, courses are are really solid and the other part of it is you know it's it's a different way to learn you know there there might be some folks out there who can do sort of the lecture thing um for me it's it's it never really resonated with me something like this where it's hands-on is 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 really good for for people like me and uh it's 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 awesome that they have this free course so even if you're you know a python guru um but but you think this might be a good way to learn something else uh, you know, you could dive through the Python course. You could pick a different language and dive through that uh, totally for free. And then if that looks like the kind of, you know, learning model that's really going to work for you, um, you know, then you kind of know that without having to spend any money. They didn't really, like, I was trying to think about it. I guess when I was learning a program, I, I mostly did it from, like, books before even really, like, getting on the internet or there being internet. I mean, I guess there probably was, but we didn't really use it. Yeah. Um, so the closest I could think of this was, did you ever do Vim Tutor? No, I didn't. Ah, uh, so if you ever, you know, have accessed Vim, one of the things that will recognize, or I guess VI is the same thing. I'm not really good about the difference between the two. Um, and so if yeah, you, I don't know either. <laughs> if, if you open them, sometimes the bottom would be like, I forget, there's some command you can type and it will basically walk you through like a document, which also tells you like how to edit and you like move up and down in the document. And it's sort of almost like kind of like interactive fiction about learning how to use Vim. Uh, oh, which I, yeah. I okay. still don't Emacs, know. Emacs has something similar. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, and I was thinking like, actually this kind of is like that, but you know, of course like a hundred times better or whatever, but um, yeah, you know, when you originally said that, I thought you were thinking about, um, they actually used to have these, 
Um, I, I, I keep wanting to say choose your own adventure. They're about the same form factor as those choose your own adventure books, but it's not, you read it, you know, left to right. Um, but, but you get to a point and there's basically like a little puzzle and, um, um, you know, you, you're supposed to like solve the puzzle and then somehow there's some way to like validate you got it right. Um, and then you keep reading. And so the, the idea is you have to, it's kind of on the honor system, but, but you would, um, you'd be reading, this is just like a paperback book. And then it would be like, Oh, put in this basic code and then, and then edit it to, to solve the puzzle. And uh, that's basically oh, how cool. I got started. Yeah, so I mean, I think this, you know, format is, you know, obviously catching on in a lot of different places. And it's really awesome to see um, this as a learning resource. I think it will really resonate with people, the ability to be able to be almost anywhere and be able to interactively, you know, read, write the code, not necessarily just like listening to a lecture and trying to figure out like, how do I make it go 50% faster? or How fast can I go before I can't understand the person anymore? <laughs> uh, not that I've ever done that before. Um, but yeah. yeah, I think this is a great forum for learning. Yeah, this is awesome, guys. Check it out. Educative.io slash programming throwdown. That's going to get you a 10% discount. And that's also going to let them know that, um, you know, that 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 uh, this was a good slot for them, that that they were a good sponsor for us. So so that helps us out. Um, it also helps helps you out. And uh, check it out. Also, let us know, you know, send us comments, send us email. Uh, let us know what you think of the courses. And, you know, we can relay that back to the folks at Educative and, uh, and give them feedback so you can keep improving. All right. Thanks for the sponsorship. And uh, let's get back to interviewing. All right. I want to talk more about, uh, talk some about how Deep Code works. Um, you know, we talked about from the technical side, but as a developer, what's, what's sort of that experience like? Uh, so, uh, so there's multiple ways to use Deep Code. Uh, that's the idea is we have a public API and you can, and command line interface, you can really hook it up anywhere you want. Uh, but the most standard uh, usage, as we spoke earlier, is uh, part of the IDE. So uh, we released already a VS Code and Atom uh, plugins, so you can directly just get the suggestions uh, as you as you code. Um, the next stage is obviously after you commit the code, then we actually have integrations with uh, with GitHub, Bitbucket, and GitLab. Uh, where we have a bot that automatically will comment on pull requests that will tell you, hey, you guys are doing these new things. By the way, you're introducing this issue. Please look at it. So in this case, it gives you kind of a diff, uh, diff analysis only on the new things. Uh, and obviously, at the later stage, you can actually add it to any CID, uh, CI or CD pipelines or QA, let's put it that way. Uh, mm -hmm. So it really depends on the, on the workflow that you're actually working in, but you can use it pretty much anywhere. That makes sense. So from a usability standpoint, it sounds similar to other static analysis tools like, like Shellshock or, or Pylint or, or Flake or one of these things. I mean, yeah, from a workflow perspective, absolutely the case. Uh, the big difference is that uh, we actually run pretty much in real time. So we actually complete the analysis in like seconds, like one second full average piece of code to even less. So that allows you to actually have the IDE piece because a lot of linters, et cetera, when they run the IDE, it takes time uh, uh, to actually ah, get okay. results. Yeah, so that's, speed is one of our main focus. Uh, everything has to be real time uh, for, uh, for the experience to be correct and for the people not to say, okay, I have to wait now for 15 minutes to get my results. Hopefully I get an email, great. Uh, that's yeah, really, that the, the, the amount of time you save is kind of wasted by waiting. Yeah, right. So, so um, 
are you running some some machine learning um, in the Visual Studio Code extension, or is are you making an RPC with the with the code to a server? Yeah, it, it's a server side analysis. Uh, so pretty much, uh, we have a cloud server a server that can do that. Uh, for larger companies, you can also have the on-premise server that actually runs it locally. If you uh, if you're fully behind a firewall, for example. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. So if you um, um, and we'll talk about this. Actually, we should talk about the, the pricing and all that later. But if you're a student, uh, or you know, you're working on a hobby project, then um, you just turn this on. You're good to go. If you're working at, um, you know, if, if you're working at like a military research lab or something, uh, then maybe you know, it might not be the best idea to turn this on. And so, what you want to do is reach out to, to Boris and get a contract for your company and get get something on premises. That is correct. And yeah, when you install it in the ID, you can just select which server you actually want to get the analysis happening on, either the, the cloud-based SaaS or your own. Cool, that makes sense. And so what languages are supported? Is it is it uh, is it gonna take all like like is it pretty much everything or is there are you starting with a few key languages? So we started with kind of the, the top languages. So we have Java, JavaScript, uh, TypeScript, Python. So this is live today. Uh, this month we're going to release C and C++, very likely. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, good news. Uh, uh, and, uh, and yeah, we're going to be adding a couple more languages this year. Pretty much our main focus has been to kind of uh, perfect, making sure that we really rock on all languages that are live rather than just uh, add every single language out there and be just average. Uh, and we built the the platform, the architecture to do so. So now adding new languages is extremely fast for us, which is uh, uh, which will enable the addition of new languages as well. Plus, at some point there is the vision to open source it, so people coming up with uh, new languages, which happens a lot these days, can just uh, add it as well. Cool, that makes sense. So you know, anything that's machine learning based, you have to sort of deal with this sort of four possible outcomes, right? Um, you know, so, so true positive means, you know, a person made a mistake they've seen a thousand times, you tell them about it, they fix it, that's awesome. Um, true negative is, 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 you know, everything else that your program is not telling people about or, you know, things that, that are fine, right? Um, but let's talk a little bit about the false situations. So, you know, if, you're, if your program tells someone to fix something, but then they kind of disagree, What's sort of what do they do there? Is there a way to give you feedback in the IDE, or do they turn that one off? Is there like a uh, you know slash slash ignore or something that they can put? Absolutely. So yeah, we definitely have uh, slash slash deep code ignore or DC ignore, uh, which uh, will pretty much ignore the, the specific instance in the line before or after. Uh, and you can actually highlight which specific uh, issue you're ignoring because sometimes you can have more than one on a single line of code. Um, and same thing, you can actually provide feedback. So the way our platform is built, that once you provide a feedback, we can very quickly, I'm talking within minutes, we can actually adjust the knowledge base and either kind of expand the rule or split it into multiple rules uh, so it actually get accurate. So that's, uh, that's the beauty of the platform, that you can very quickly and very easily ingest those, the, this, this user feedback and kind of really push, uh, push the fix to everybody else immediately. Cool. That's so really awesome. What about the how are the how are the errors surfaced? So, so um, uh, can can you kind of walk me through that? So the machine learning system says this um, this I guess syntax flow tree. Um, you know, we've seen this pattern before and we don't like it. How does that turn into something actionable, like in sort of an English format where someone can read that and grok it? 
so this is uh, one of the kind of a, a nice add-on engine that we have, which gives you kind of semantic explanations of the problem. This is where the symbolic AI comes in. Uh, so as, as we have metadata to the original piece of the code, we can kind of define gaps and say, hey, the function that you're calling, and we kind of tell you which function, and if you actually hover with the mouse over it to actually show you the line of code and the function that you are calling, right, is uh, getting user input, right, and you can actually see what the, uh, the object with the user input is, and this input flows into some kind of an execution on the back end, for example, and we can actually, when you cover it, we'll show you where it is, and we can tell you, hey, this uh, user input is not being sanitized by, uh, by the time it gets to the execution, uh, which can actually cause some kind of a denial of service or path traversal or uh, many different... Uh, undesirable thing executing on your backend. Uh, but but that's the idea. So we actually have a human readable explanation that semantically points to each object of the problem. Uh, and you can in a code base to point you through it so we can actually walk it through and understand the flow. So so am I right to say there's sort of like uh, there is there's sort of this machine learning step where you are doing this almost unsupervised problem of looking at um, um, GitHub PRs and trying to uh, trying to find patterns of mistakes, right? But then to convert that into some sort of like slot-based language generation, there has to be like a person in the loop there, right? So is there yeah. is there someone so, on your side who's looking at the most common errors and then trying to find a symbolic you know, representation of that? Yeah, so we have a semi-supervised learning on this step, a second part, which allows us to create categories of the problems, right? So we have a data flow category, for example, saying, hey, you have a user input and flows into something and it's not sanitized. So what happens here, we define this category, uh, and then with a very small seat of examples, right, uh, our machine learning actually identifies thousands of objects that are actually doing the same thing. So we have, you provide three examples or 10, 20 examples of uh, user input functions. And then uh, our core automatically says, hey, there's actually here 6,000 different user inputs that I found. So that becomes your category with 6,000 potential user inputs, right? Then you actually say, what uh, are the things or where, where something actually can get executed on the backend? And that becomes the, the category of those problems. And then you look for sanitizers, and you can have like thousands of or hundreds of thousands of sanitizers. And any combination of those three can actually lead uh, uh, to a data flow problem, right? So with very little effort from uh, from uh, from a user, you end up having with pretty much millions of combinations of problems that you detect. And this is kind of the benefit that you don't have to write individual rules. Instead of writing a million rules, within five minutes, you actually created a category that actually represents millions of potential problems. Oh, that's super interesting. So I think uh, it sounds a little similar to sort of these look-alike, you know, fingerprint models that they do for, um, for, for spam detection. So for example... Um, someone will, will mark an email as spam, and so then what will happen is a system will, will add that to a list of seed spam emails, and then afterwards they, there's some, there's some look-alike system that says, does this new email share you know, a lot of the same properties as, as my spam email? If so, then let's, let's sort of add it to the spam category. And so, so it's, it's almost like an active learning type thing. So in your case, Someone says, um, "Hey, you know this," or, or from the GitHub pull request, you can you can emerge that that this uh, passing the string 
directly in this function um, is was not was not you know sanitary, and so here's a pull request that adds a sanitization wrapper around the string, and and you can seed uh, sort of let's say a new problem with with that with a few of those examples, and then do some lookalike um, type thing to find as you said like the, all of the adjacent pull requests that are most similar in nature to that one and then if um, if that process gave you pretty high signal so there wasn't a lot of false positives then you say this is this is sort of like a good concept and then you can roll that out yeah and uh, the the add-on point to this is that um, while you create a category since we have the knowledge base and the history of of Git in memory, let's put it that way. We auto, it automatically tells you how many people have fixed such problems, how many people are vulnerable to this problem today, and you get this real time pretty much. So as you kind of create a category, you automatically see is that a important category, and you can even look into into the uh, vulnerabilities and say, okay, am I seeing any false positives or not? So you can very quickly check if it's a uh, if it's accurate category and it should be pushed to production. So that allows. Again, within 10 minutes, you can actually create uh, millions of rules uh, compared to what a current rule-based system looks like. Very cool. So can you tell me a little bit about the scale on the machine learning side? Like, like you, you're you ingesting just an unbelievable, it sounds like you're just an unbelievable amount of, of data. Um, do you have sort of like web mirrors running 24-7, scraping GitHub? I mean, is this something that runs on thousands and thousands of machines in the cloud? Um, um, yeah, can you give me an idea roughly of the scale and the scope of this effort? So that's that's the beauty of it all. We have built uh, a very lean pipelines, and we don't have to scrape. Like we've obviously read GitHub once, but once you actually receive the repository history and convert it into our internal representation, which is considerably smaller than the GitHub uh, uh, representation, then uh, you actually just have to look at the new changes into this repository. So we don't have to kind of Re, re, re-grab everything else, right? Uh, and then our internal representation is uh, pretty efficient. So we're talking, let's say, for all of Java, you're going to be talking like a couple of terabytes. It's not going to be much larger than that. Uh, and analyzing, let's say, all of the Java, Java codes uh, out there, it will take you less than a day. Everything happens quick in a RAM. Wow. So, so less than a terabyte for all Java code on GitHub. Yeah, and this is not only the tip, this is all the history. When we, What we do, we, we pretty much use in memory, we have a memory index, of a semantic index of every single version of every single repository uh, uh, out there in GitHub. For per language, obviously, we do it. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that's just a treasure trove of information. That's, that's what you need in order to actually extract the knowledge of the development community automatically right otherwise if that's not efficient and if you cannot index it and grab it really fast then you kind of dead in the water right it would take like months to actually figure anything else uh, yeah and that's one of the reasons why we chose not to uh, to do static analysis without requiring to build or compile anything because clearly if you want to compile something from like five years ago like it's unlikely you'll be able to actually build it you on your own yeah 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 and then the, the time too to build all of that code Correct, is yeah. extraordinary Cool. So tell me a little bit about, um, well, well, first of all, so folks who are listening who are, you know, in college and high school or they're working on open source projects, uh, what is uh, available for them and what's the, the price like? 
everything for free is a short answer. So we are 100% free for anything open source. Uh, our motto is pretty much, hey, we are learning from the open source community, pretty much everything. Uh, we want to actually encourage the open source community to get better, be more dynamic, because then we learn even more. Uh, so it's fully free. So anything in the cloud, GitLab, Bitbucket, uh, uh, GitHub, it's free. You just log in with your account for the Git and all your repositories you can scan. You can scan anything open source. Uh, for ed educational purposes, the same. Uh, we've actually worked with a couple of universities already, even some of them are developing open source uh, add-ons, which is great as part of their master thesis. Um, nice. And yeah, I think the first one that started doing that was San Jose State University. Uh, so we're very happy with the collaboration there. And, um, and yeah, and, and it is free for them because that's the idea. We believe that uh, students, they start using things and over time as they go into the industry, they say, hey, I actually need that uh, commercially. And our tool is pretty good for people that are learning things. That's the main thing because we explain the problems, we provide examples, how other people have fixed it in a totally different settings. Uh, so it's a great learning tool as well. Uh, and actually we also free for small companies. Like if you have less than 30 developers, uh, pretty much you can just start using it and nobody will ever bother you. Cool, this is, this is awesome. You, we have uh, been super fortunate to have you on the show, have uh, Zenhub on the show, and a few other folks on the show, CircleCI on the show. And, and, and almost all of these, actually every one of these products is free for students. So if, you, if you're doing, you know, let's say a senior design project, um, you know, you're, you're a CS student or a computer engineering student, you have a senior design project, and it's something that's going to take you three, four, or five months from start to finish. So it's not a trivial project. You're working with a team. You, know, you could have continuous integration. You can have some project management, and, and, and you can have the, the deep code static analysis totally for free. And it's really going to give, you know, you students out there a feel of what it's like to you know, work on a team, um, you know, an industry, which is which is which is really amazing. Yeah, and that's why it allows students to get into software development much easier these days because all the tooling helps them uh, be faster. Yeah, totally. So, what about? Uh, I mean, I'm sure this is this is uh, personalized, but just kind of at a high level, how does it work for businesses? So, let's say someone works at, um, yeah, not a let's say bigger than a thirty person business, but um, not a huge giant conglomerate, so they work at, say, a mid-sized business, let's say Macy's or something, as an example. How can they go about getting deep code um, you know, on-premises, and, and what does that kind of look like? Yeah, uh, so the on-premise uh, stuff, uh, it happens through Docker container. Uh, so it is, you get your custom Docker container, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to set up, uh, and then you have your own deep code on-premise server, and then you have the exact same integration, the exact same benefits uh, than, uh, than, than uh, the SaaS uh, option. Uh, and uh, the cost there is uh, ranging, depending on your size, I would say between 30 to $50 uh, per developer per month. Uh, clearly, we offer uh, a 30-day free trial, so people can experience it, test it with their code base, uh, see what it is uh, uh, before they have to purchase. So there is a risk-free trial there as well. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, so now we'll jump into a little bit about about the company. So, so is DeepCode in? In you were mentioned ETH Zurich. Is DeepCode based out of there, the company? Yeah, we are literally five minutes away from the Zurich main, uh, from the Zurich ETH main campus. So cool. we are a Zurich-based company. 
Cool. Yeah, I've been there before. It's it's not it's very expensive if I remember correctly, but uh, but it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I went there for a conference one time, and uh, um, yeah, I'm probably gonna get this wrong. You can correct me, but I, I think I just got a hamburger, and it was it was like eight dollars or something. <laughs> that sounds like a cheap hamburger. Okay. Yeah, it's probably more than that. Um, but this was probably like ten years ago. But um, um, but yeah, Zurich is beautiful. Um, I remember we took the train to, I want to say Bern, but it's been a long yeah. time. Someplace and we did some skiing and it was it was gorgeous. Well, Bern is the capital, so likely you went to somewhere else for skiing. Uh, oh, okay, okay. I think maybe yeah. we did Bern one day and then another day. Oh, actually, yeah, we went to Jungfarjok, like it's the uh, tallest Jung, point. Jungfrauhol, yeah, yeah. Jungfrauhol, okay, there we yeah. go. And then I think somewhere around there, there was this. Oh, all I really remember is um, um, it was a downhill skiing, but it was kind of a very natural downhill, and it, it was literally down this mountain, and it just it just kind of kept going and going. It was gorgeous. Yeah, there's so many skiing options here, and yes, the Alps are like yeah, so many different, like off piste, not on piste, and long piste, and very natural indeed. Yeah, it's awesome. So so. Is it um, so? Everyone's over there. So, if folks are interested in um, 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 jobs. It would be over there. There's not. There's not like remote work or anything like that at the moment. Uh, we do have two people that are doing remote work, but mostly this is when um, you're working on kind of the integrations, like open source things that we actually deliver. Uh, most of the core is pretty much happening here. Just because it is very dynamic, it's changing so fast that it's very hard to do the coordination. Over time, clearly that will expand. So we can have specific areas that could be uh, uh, worked on offline. But today there's too much talking interactions with the team, so yeah, uh, we, we like how, to be close to each other. How how big is the, is the company right now? We're 15 people, continuously growing. As as I said, now we're getting roughly about one new person per month. Uh, wow. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's nice and and growing and very exciting because of that. Yeah, wow, it's all. I mean, so you'll you'll almost double next year. Yes, and we did double last year, but that's kind of for a, that's the definition of a startup. Like, if you don't do like hundred percent at least year over year, then you're not considered a startup anymore. So you have to. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Well, nowadays it's unbelievable. Actually, you're seeing a lot of IPOs nowadays, like very recently. But but it seemed as though. Um, no one was going to IPO, and so it's like it's like okay, this company's worth sixty billion dollars. Is it really a startup? I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so what about internships? If folks want to come there for a summer, is is it, is it kind of too early for that, or do you are you doing internships? So, what we do, we do a lot of uh, master master student theses here. Uh, we usually run at least three at a time. Um, most of them are from ETH, but we've gotten some students that are coming from another school that officially become part of ETH just for the master thesis and they actually do it. So there are definitely options if people want to do research uh, specifically that's related to what we do and usually on top of our platform because that enables quite a lot of interesting topics. Uh, so we do a lot of those. Yeah. Cool. Cool. That makes sense. So as far as skills, it sounds like you're looking for uh, definitely people who do program analysis um, also, yep. it sounds like maybe some graph convolution or like some some deep learning folks would be would be useful. Uh, we have some deep learning assets uh, for some of the new services that we're preparing for. 
uh, it's been happening. So we've had a number of GPUs here running and making noise. Uh, All right. Cool. Uh, but yes, uh, so program analysis, uh, most of the backend is in C++, uh, obviously. Uh, but yeah, pretty much core developers uh, as well. Front-end as well, we have a, a pretty strong team. So there's always uh, opportunities there as well. Cool. And what's it like to work at DeepCode? So what is something that kind of makes DeepCode unique as, a, as far as a place to work? Oh, well, it's definitely an exhilarating experience. You can think about it as uh, sprinting while drinking from a fire hose. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, daily new things happening. Like, you cannot even plan your day easily enough because there's uh, new things. So, internally, uh, again, the team is highly motivated and then kind of amazing experts in the space. And they keep on innovating new solutions and methods that uh, oftentimes... Even researchers actually spend years on without much success. So a lot of those things we don't even have time to publish anymore, uh, but it is required. Um, and uh, and then from external perspective, uh, again, like seeing all the major companies or, or open source frameworks using us, um, it's pretty nice. I mean, this is pretty much what keeps us working late at night, uh, as well as having developers kind of unpromptedly saying, hey, that's amazing, I love this. Uh, you're building guys something amazing, so that's uh, yeah, that makes it lots of fun. Cool, that's awesome. Yeah, I bet it's 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 intense in the beginning because you um, you don't you have to figure out really like the size of the market you're in, and um, and so there's I have a friend who's who's starting who started a company a couple of years back, and he says it's just huge ups and downs, like it's this roller coaster rocket ship where um, you know he's just getting thrown all over the place. Yeah, but but it's amazing because you really like cutting edge stuff. We work very closely with ETH Zurich, so there's a lot of research coming from there, and new things come up all the time, which is great. That's awesome. Have you thought about? Um, you know, I got something the other day from GitHub saying this one of these old projects that that I open sourced a long time ago um, has some security vulnerability. It was actually in a dependency of the project, and so GitHub emailed me, and then about a week later, GitHub actually sent me a pull request updating that dependency. Um, have you thought about basically you could do almost like an outbound marketing approach where you just, you just ping random people on GitHub and say, your code has this error, you could fix it, you know? Uh, so we've done uh, small tests, like we've actually filed pull requests in Mozilla and some other places. Uh, specifically in the security space, that's obviously uh, well regarded and uh, pretty much all of them for active projects were accepted. So, yes, we've tested it and we cool. are indeed looking into making it more uh, more scalable as well. Very cool. That sounds, that sounds totally awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to try this. I have to... Uh, so, actually, one question. If, if someone installs the extension... Um, so, you know, on my laptop, I do a bunch of hacking on random things for fun, but I also have a, a real day job where they don't want the source code going out of the, you know, off-premises, right? So how, how can I sort of reconcile that with this extension? Can I, is there an easy way to turn it on and off? Should I have two yeah. copies of Visual Studio Code? How would I do that? So that's a common request by our users. So what happens for each project that you open, you actually get a pop-up saying, are you okay for this code to be transmitted and analyzed? And you can clearly say no for the project that you don't care about. Ah, got it. 
so really any project so when you first install it you have three three open projects you're going to get three separate pop-ups for each one saying do you want to do this do you want to do this do you want to do this same thing if you close and open a new one you're going to get it again because that's yeah common common concern and uh, it has to be fresh in your mind you have to always make a decision saying do you want to do it or not uh, you can cool. also clearly disable it fully if you know that like yeah, I'm going to be working only on my proprietary stuff for uh, for a day yeah that makes sense very cool. Yeah, I will check this out. I think Patrick's going to have to wait until you make the C plus plus version. <laughs> for, actually, yeah. Now you're doing you're doing Java, right? Or is it still C plus plus? No, mostly C plus plus still. Oh, is uh, it? Okay, got it. So, so Patrick, I'll ping you later this month. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wow, it does move fast. Wow, that's quick. Cool. Um, so tell people how they can reach out to you. Um, so these, these would be you know students, people who want to get this installed at their workplace. What's a good way to reach out to you? And then also, what's a good way separately for people to just kind of passively follow what you're doing, maybe on social media or somewhere else? Yeah, so reaching to me, uh, my personal email is boris at deepcode.ai. Uh, you can also just go to deepcode.ai website. There is a live chat there. Well, not always live, but if we are up, up and running, you'll be live. Otherwise, we'll <laughs> yeah. come back to you over an email. Um, uh, all, on social media, obviously, our uh, Twitter handle is uh, DeepCodeAI. Uh, same for uh, LinkedIn. And I'd say with uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, you'll be getting most of the news about us. Uh, we also have a Medium uh, page where people oh, can cool. actually we get our developer advocate actually pushes a lot of um, a lot of cool articles, examples, what it is like top bugs, specific vulnerabilities. Uh, so that's that's pretty nice, uh, and now we actually have a, a YouTube channel for tutorials, like how do how do you set up VS Code, for example, how do you use VS Code, uh, how do you actually set on-premise versions as well. Uh, so all those you can have kind of a quick walkthroughs. So uh, it should answer most of your questions. Very very cool. And you said just to recap, there's a command line for folks who aren't using VS Code. There's a there's a command line option that they would yes. uh, they would install through apt or something. That is correct. And you can just use the command line. You can literally point to a folder to analyze all the code there. Very cool. Thank you so much, Boris. This is awesome. Yes, I mean, I you. personally am enriched by this. I'm going to try it out. I'm really excited to see what it what comes up. And, Any um, feedback, let me know. All right, cool. Sounds good. We really appreciate your time. And yeah, you folks at, at home, you should, you should check this out. This sounds amazing. If you're on your drive and you didn't catch uh, some of the, some of the, the, you know, the, URLs and things like that. We're going to post it all in the show notes. So you can just from iTunes or whatever podcast app, you can just tap over to the description. There's a link to the show notes. You can get it, get all the info from there. But uh, thanks again, Boris. This is awesome. And uh, have fun, you know, do some skiing. And uh, we'll reach out to you after we've tried this out. Sounds good. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.